I'm going to ask you to join me in uh, the book of Hosea. So if you find Ezekiel, which is a fairly large book in the Old Testament, turn right, head of the New Testament, it goes Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 is where we're going to start this morning. We'll read a little bit from chapter 1 a little bit from chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin uh, a new series uh, in this uh, book that will lead us through the rest of the summer uh, into the beginning of, of the fall season. And before I read, um, I, let, me, let me set it up a little bit historically. And then in the sermon, I'm going to talk a little bit more about why we are going to look at this uh, book uh, together. Uh, but Hosea was a prophet, uh, spoke on behalf of God. And uh, he was, at the time that he was uh, speaking and writing, uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, uh, was two. They had divided into two nations, north and south. And Hosea speaks primarily uh, to the northern part of God's people, the northern part of Israel. And he's speaking at a time when they are doing pretty well. Things are going pretty well for them, but he speaks at a time when things are about to go very badly for them. They are about to uh, endure a negative change. Uh, The empire of Assyria is looming and will eventually conquer them, defeat them, uh, destroy their cities, and scatter these people away from their homeland and around the world. And Hosea is saying to them, hey, this is about to happen if you don't repent. If you do not turn around and begin to seek God, this is about to happen. This is why this is happening. And then he extends and he opens up a horizon of hope. Beyond that trauma, he said God will again intrude. And even in all the darkness that is coming, um, there, there will be hope. So that's kind of a historical setup for, for what we are going to read, and we'll talk a little bit more um, about the message of this book as we go along. But join me now in Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to jump to chapter 3 and read all of that chapter for us. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's the south. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's the north. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. The daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then go to chapter 3 with me. It's a short chapter. I'll read the, the whole thing for us. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her. For 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, 
without effort or household god. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Sometimes we don't know what to do with what we read uh, in this book that you have uh, given to us. Um, So many uh, times we encounter here things that uh, disturb us, things that confuse us. And uh, so we come humbly this morning and we come uh, trusting that what we've read is a gift from you, uh, that it is the gift of wisdom and life. Um, And we come trusting that you will keep your promise, that you will accompany your word by your spirit. And so we ask for your spirit's work, that he would enlighten our eyes, that he would open our hearts uh, so that we could receive uh, this word and uh, not just understand it as ideas, uh, but to have it uh, shape us and change us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can tell uh, from what we have read, Hosea is a bizarre book. And it doesn't get any better from here. It doesn't get less strange. It gets more so. I think it's in chapter 5 where Hosea compares God to dry rot. He compares God to dry rot. That destroys a wooden home. Not usually the way we think of God, is it? This is a strange and bizarre book. And so why are we here? Why why are we going to spend six or seven Sundays uh, wrestling with the message of this weird prophet? Well, uh, this past spring, we spent some time in the Gospel of John. And while we were in the Gospel of John, I found myself saying the word love a lot. And the problem with that word is that there's this whole range of meanings, implications, and assumptions that get connected to that word. So, for example, I can say I love Ben and Jerry's Tonight Dough tonight Ice Cream. <laughs> I can also say, I love my wife. Now, hopefully, the word love means different things in those two different sentences, right? For the health of my marriage, for the health of my uh, physical body, hopefully I spend more time with my wife than I do with ice cream. So love can mean different things in different contexts. Which raises the question, what about when we use that word of God? What does it mean when we say a simple sentence like, God loves you? What does that look like? What does it look like when when God loves someone? Well, with all of its strangeness, the book of Hosea can help us answer that question. Because at the core of this bizarre book 
is God loving his people. And so I want us to come this morning to these opening chapters, the beginning of this book, with that question, what does it look like when God loves? What does it mean to say that God loves you? And we will see here that God's love is like divorce and remarriage. God's love is like divorce and remarriage. First of all, divorce. When the Bible uses the words for love, the words and images of covenant are never very far away. God loves his people, and indeed he loves all of creation in covenant relationships. Now what does that mean? Well, a covenant is a public, formal, legal Committed relationship based on promises with consequences, uh, negative consequences for breaking those promises, positive consequences for keeping those promises. So when we hear things like God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. That is covenant language. He's establishing a covenant relationship with his people. And he says to his people, Israel, here's the covenant promise. I will give you a land. I will prosper you. I will make you more than the stars in the sky. More than the sand on the seashore. That's God's side. And then he says to them, now I want you to make promises to me. That you will worship me and me alone. And that you will keep my laws in this land that I'm giving to you. Now, in a covenant, when one party fails to keep the promises, the other party can sue. They can sue for the negative consequences and in the extreme in extreme situations for the relationship to be absolved completely. That's what's happening in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. These books are are covenant lawsuits. God is suing his people for their failure to keep their loyalty and commitments to him. And these prophets, like Hosea, they are acting as a kind of attorney, speaking on behalf of God who is suing his people. Now, that sounds very cold, doesn't it? That sounds very distant. That sounds very disconnected from what we think of when we think the word love. Right? That sounds like business, not romance or friendship. But think about this. Think about marriage. Even in our culture, even today, what is marriage? It is a public Formal, legal, committed relationship based on promises with implied consequences. Right? But do we think of marriage as cold, as disconnected from the word love? No, many would say that marriage is the ultimate expression of that word. Of not only is it a legal relationship, but it is a deeply personal, personal, intimate, passionate 
companionship. It is both. And that is the model for God's covenant with His people. That's why the Bible doesn't just use the image of king and subjects, but also of husband and wife to describe God's relationship with His people, to describe how He loves them. But again, we come to the prophetic books of the Old Testament and we find that the marriage is falling apart. We find that God is suing His people for a divorce. He says in chapter 1, verse 9, they are not my people. I am not their God. He is dissolving the covenant relationship because they have turned to other gods. Because they have broken their commitments, their promises to him. But if you read Hosea... You will not find dry legal proceedings. Prophets prosecute not with legalese, but with poetry. Hosea outdoes the most romantic of poets in the extremities of his language, his emotion, and his imagery. And in that, he is similar to most of the other Old Testament prophets. But Hosea is unique in this way. Hosea has to take it a step further. Because Hosea doesn't just make the metaphors. He lives the metaphor. How does Hosea become a prophet? Isaiah and Ezekiel, they have these crazy visions of God's throne room. That's how they speak on behalf of God. How does Hosea, how is he qualified, how is he licensed, certified to speak on behalf of God? He has to live in a terrible marriage. He has to marry a sexually promiscuous woman and then has to experience her leaving him for other men. To become a prophet... Hosea has to experience one of the most profoundly painful ways that human beings can hurt each other. To see the one you love most reject you for someone else. Why? Why does Hosea have to go through that? Well, because Hosea isn't just talking about ideas. Hosea is speaking of God's heart. And so in order to speak God's word, Hosea must experience God's heart. God is saying, this is what I have gone through. This pain is what I have experienced with my people as they have turned to other gods, as they have broken the law that I made for them. 
Now, what does that have to do with us? What does all of that, all of this background, have to do with us? Well, God still loves this way. God still loves this way. And so this is still his heart towards idolatry, which is the cause of all sin. This is still God's heart towards idolatry, which is the cause of all sin. What is idolatry? It is making anything or anyone more important than God. And that's why we sin. If God says, don't steal, and we steal, why do we do that? It's because in that moment, something is more important than God. So see, sin isn't just rule-breaking. It is relational betrayal. It's adultery. The heart of sin is adultery. When we read the Bible and and we read books like Hosea, and we'll we'll encounter some really disturbing passages, we, we tend to recoil when we hear about the anger of God. Right? Especially as modern Americans, we recoil to hear about the fierce wrath And judgment of God against sin. But doesn't it make more sense when we put it in this context? Can't you see and understand a little bit more of how the Bible talks about God's anger when it's connected to this relational context? You see, God's anger, his wrath, isn't our anger against ants. I mean, ants, not the relatives, the insects, okay? So with this weather that we have been having, uh, a lot of ants have begun to show up here at Centerpoint Church, which is not what we want. We want people to show up at church. We don't want ants to show up at church. And, and there is something about walking into a room and seeing a pile of ants or a line of ants that it, it is infuriating, right, Jennifer? <laughs> it is infuriating. It, it just it makes me Mad, and I start. You know, I want to smash, right? That's not God's anger. God's anger isn't Hulk, right? Turning green and just wanting to smash everything. No, God's anger is the grieved anger of a betrayed spouse. Don't you understand that? I mean, if you had a friend who's married. And their spouse cheated on them. And they said to you, meh, no big deal. That wouldn't be okay, would it? You would not think that's, that's healthy behavior. You would question the validity of their love for that person in the first place, wouldn't you? Well, why do we expect less of God who loves perfectly? You know, sometimes preachers like me... Complain about people not taking sin seriously. And we'll say people aren't taking sin seriously because they don't take judgment seriously. I don't, I don't know. I think based on this, maybe it's because we don't take love 
seriously. Maybe we don't understand the depth of God's love and how he longs to bind himself to us. And what it means when we betray that with our sin. Now that creates a problem for us. Because every week we come and we say we're sinful people. right? We confess our sins as a part of our worship every week. We acknowledge as we walk into this room we are sinful people. So does that mean that God wants to divorce us? Does that mean, does God loving us mean that he wants to divorce us? Because we are sinful people? Well, no. Because God's love isn't merely like divorce. It is like divorce and remarriage. The truly shocking moment in the story of Hosea, it isn't that he marries Gomer. And it isn't when Gomer leaves him. It is when he goes and brings her back home. It is when God says to him in chapter 3, Hosea, after all of the pain that you have been through, after all that she has done to you, now go. And take her, bring her back home, renew your marriage vows, and restore this committed relationship with her. Can you imagine how that would have felt? Can you imagine what Hosea's family and friends thought? Dude, we thought you were crazy by marrying her in the first place. Now what are you doing? This is beyond ridiculous. But there's not just the emotional and and social indignity of this action. There is a real material cost. Do you see that in chapter 3? Now in this culture, the custom would have been, if you get married, you pay your in-laws. You pay a bride price if you're going to get married in this culture. So Hosea would have already paid that. And it would have been costly to marry Gomer in the first place. And now he has to pay again. But this price in chapter 3 suggests something more than a bride price. It suggests that Gomer, through a series of bad decisions and addictive behavior, has ended up not just in the arms of another man, but in sexual slavery. Hosea is retrieving his wife from sexual slavery. She is up for auction. And after all that she had done to him, God says, go and buy her back, not as your slave, but as your wife. Now, please imagine that scene. Please 
feel that scene. And then hear God saying, that's how I love my people. That's how I love those who have betrayed me. That's how I love those who have cheated on me. See, God's love isn't, it's not a romantic candlelight dinner. God's love isn't Jim proposing to Pam on the office. God's love is exhausted, brokenhearted Hosea, trudging into the filth of the marketplace where they sell sex slaves to retrieve his wife and to bring her home to renew his marriage vows to her and restore their relationship. That's God's love. That's how he loves his people. That's how he loves us. I am convinced that this scene in Hosea chapter 3 is behind the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, saying to those who are Christians, saying to the church, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Now that image isn't God going to Walmart looking for a deal. And he finds you on the shelf. And, think, and thinks, this is a really great deal. I need this one. That's not it. No, it's Hosea 3. It is us rejecting him, betraying him. But God in Jesus, the promised son of David, spoken of here at the end of chapter 3, entering the filth, Of this world that has walked away from him and paying the price of his own blood to make us his own. See, Jesus, as as I I feel, I I do, I feel really bad for Hosea. He, he, He had a rough vocation as a prophet. But Jesus went further, didn't he? Jesus paid a greater price, didn't he? Jesus didn't pay silver for us. No, he was sold for silver. He was sold for silver in order to buy us for an eternal, unbreakable, new covenant relationship with God. God has bound himself to us in Jesus. And no, he will not divorce us. You see, in Christ, we live in the remarriage part of this story. We live in these latter days that are mentioned here in chapter 3. 
We live after God has shown up in Jesus and paid the price. And the price that he has paid for us isn't the first bride price. It isn't the price when we were a catch. It is the second price. For those who have been enslaved by our own self-destructive choices and behavior. That's the price he pays. That's how he loves us. And so while, yes, we should feel the weight of our sin as we read the book of Hosea, so much more do we need to then turn and see the better Hosea. Feeling the weight of our sin, we do not despair that God will divorce us, but we turn with confidence to the bridegroom who paid the price of his own blood to make us his own. God longs to live in a covenant relationship with us. He longs to live in a committed, loving relationship with us, his people. But when God goes looking for a covenant partner, he doesn't go to eHarmony. He doesn't go to Match.com. He doesn't go and find the most compatible, the most desirable companions. No, he, he goes to the red light district. He goes to us at our worst, not at our best. He goes to people lost in their self-destruction to remake us His bride. To remake us people who belong to Him. That's what we mean when we say, God loves you. Let's pray.